Aloha. You are listening to a message from Shorebreak Church. If you have been blessed by this week's audio message, amen. And you can remain standing if you would. Grab your Bibles, go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to jump right into the reading of the scriptures. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. If not, we're your church that studies the Bible. The reason we stand at the reading of the scriptures is because we believe this to be the word of God. Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. This is the word of the Lord. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, for they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said to him, or Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we quiet our souls to receive from your word. Have mercy on us, O oh God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse us from all our sins so that we would understand you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, aloha to you. How's it? You guys doing all right? That was lame. That was really bad. Um, but it's good to be with you. All that being said, my name's Travis. I'm the pastor over teaching and preaching here at the church. Shorebrook is led by other men who are qualified and gifted by God. We have Pastor Eric, we have Pastor Leo, and Pastor Toby, and then we also have great team leaders. We have great servants in the church and volunteers. Would you put your hands together for everyone who makes a Sunday worship gathering happen? Thank you so much. <laughs> Truly, there's so much happening behind the scenes. This is the least of them. There are so many great things that, that unfold. It's good to be with you. We're humbled that you would be with us. If you're a Christian, strong or weak or new, or you're a seasoned Christian, or maybe you're not a Christian at all. 
we're truly humbled that you would be with us and take your Sunday and, and that we would be entrusted by God to, to share his word with you. We're in a study in Mark's gospel and we're examining the life of Jesus. We're looking at the gospel according to Mark and Mark is a gospel account that is written to the Gentile people for everyone, the target audience to the Gentile, both displaying Jesus Christ as the servant and Jesus Christ as the savior. Jesus does not just save, but he serves. And Jesus does not just serves, but he saves. Jesus does great things on behalf of humanity, and Jesus does great things for the glory of God. And up until this point, the gospel according to Mark has focused on the public aspects of Jesus' ministry. He has focused on some controversies, some rebukes, but for the most part, from chapters 1 to chapters 8, the atmosphere has been one revealing the graces of God when God becomes a man and puts on human skin. So when Jesus incarnates himself and Jesus dwells among a people, what, what does that look like? What are the benefits of God becoming a man? That's really chapters one through eight, that when God becomes a man and dwells among a sinful people, the lame and the cripple walk. Those who are blind are given sight. Those who have sins are forgiven of their sins. Demons are cast out. The deaf hear. Storms are calmed. Thousands are fed. Dead people are resurrected. Because when Jesus shows up, things are never the same. And maybe that's your testimony. You realize this morning that when Jesus showed up into your dark hearts, though you were once in rebellion against God, when Jesus shows up into your life and into my life, things are never the same. For better or for worse, we are transformed, right? The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So when Jesus and the light of the gospel shines in your heart and in my heart and we see the beauty of the gospel, we worship him, we come to him, we believe in Jesus to be true or for worse, our hearts are hardened and our rebellion against God is only strengthened and our steadfastness because we do not like the light because our deeds are evil. But regardless... When Jesus encounters our life, we can never recover from it, no matter who you are. But up to this point, it has been positive, but the tone is dramatically shifting in Mark's gospel. You could say the chord progression is going from major to minor. The, the emotional feel of Mark's gospel is going from light to heavy, easy to more difficult. Because we're moving from the public benefits of God becoming a man now to the personal lessons the disciples absolutely must learn before Jesus is to resurrect, be persecuted, and then resurrect and no longer be with them in the flesh. Chapters 9 and 10 are intensives. Intensive lessons that Jesus is going to teach you and me, that he's going to carry you and I through. And in these intensive lessons, he's going to teach us different things from the end of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10. And these intensives are faith. Actually, we started on that one last week. That was last week's message. The intensives are on sin, there will be an intensive on hell, there will be an intensive on marriage and divorce, children, wealth. But today, 
the intensive Jesus will take us through is an intensive about greatness. Jesus is going to teach us on greatness. And we pick it up, though, where Jesus is, is en route on his way to the great city of Jerusalem. And this will be his last time, his last journey to this great city. His ministry in Galilee is done. His ministry in these greater regions outside of Jerusalem, it's pow, it's time to go to Jerusalem to do what Jesus came to do. And as Jesus is on the way, the viral celebrity onset, onslaught, the, the riots, the mosh pits of people trying to have an encounter with this Jesus, they're virtually over. And in verse 30, they went on and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And it's in this sober moment with his disciples alone, Jesus and the twelve, he is foretelling his death. Now, you, if you've been with us and Mark, you're like, but he said this before. He's repeated himself. Exactly. Because the first time he told them at the end of chapter 8, they did not hear it. They probably didn't want to hear it. What do you mean our Messiah is going to be killed? Because what is he talking about? In fact, verse 31 says, they did not understand saying the saying, and they were afraid to ask. So not only did they not understand, but in their failure to understand, like, we're not even going to ask them. Like, we're not even going to go there. We, and they probably didn't want to know because denial, ignorance is bliss, right? To, to know, well, I'm not going to have to really deal with this and I'm just going to pretend like it's not there and as though somehow pretending it's not going to be there is going to make it all better. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to be delivered up. I will be killed on the third day. And he predicts his own death. And this prediction of his own death, know this, this death is more significant and a death that is like no other. Carrie Fisher and her mom, Debbie Reynolds, one day later, just think of all the people who died the last 12 months, Muhammad Ali, David Bowie, John Glenn, all of those people have done some pretty, they're larger than life characters. They, they're pretty spectacular and their giftings and their talents are things that they've accomplished, but they could not foretell their death as great as they are. Not only is Jesus' prediction on point, but even greater is the foretelling of his resurrection. Jesus is able not only to say, I'm going to be delivered and I'm going to die, but when I do... On the third day, I'm going to rise again. Something none of those celebrities or those famous people could touch. Not only could he predict his own death on point, but he's saying, I'm going to rise from the dead. A prediction of his death that should cause us just to simply wonder and to marvel at this. And so Jesus confronts them up close and personal. And verse 30 tells us that he began to teach them his own Disciples. Now, I thought, now you might be thinking, but I thought there's a message on greatness. Why are we talking about the cross and death? Because greatness begins 
with a cross. Greatness, true greatness, is only achieved in Jesus' death and resurrection. Greatness, in light of his death and resurrection, greatness does not begin with what humble, awesome things you and I do for God, but greatness begins with what awesome and incredible and amazing things God has done through us, through Calvary, for God's glory and for our joy. Greatness is accomplished and understood and realized when we receive the fullness of the gospel. And any other thing that claims to be great is just a fake knockoff. So verse 33, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent this is the, one of the best lines in Mark, probably. Not the best, but it's up there as far as humor. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Are you kidding me right now? It's like junior high. Not even, it's just like elementary school right now. Arguments going down. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, If I was God which I'm not, but if I was God, verse 35 would not have gone that way. I would not have sat down and said to them, I would have stood up, laid one in on them, maybe called thunder down from heaven and lightning and just like incinerate them on on the spot. Or I'd probably be even more mean than that. Be like a death by a thousand bee stings. That's what we're gonna do right now. Because they just heard that Jesus is gonna be crucified and now they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest among themselves. Are you kidding me? But see, it's it's important to understand greatness is is something that was idolized then as it is today. We think, oh, well, you know, we're so technologically advanced. I mean, we have our tablets. Though they had tablets then. Ours are digital. Theirs were not. But we, (laughs) sign now is bad. But we think, well, we we got Facebook, we have all this technology, and we're far more superior and advanced than people were then. But you know what? With all of our technology and the fancy things we have in our life, at our core, we're exactly the same as people were 2,000 years ago. People desire greatness. People want to be awesome. And we cannot alienate ourselves from ancient people because their hearts are in the same condition as our hearts, depraved. We want, to, we want our team to be great. And if our team is to be great, then, then it means we need to make it through the playoffs. And right now, you're probably stressing, wondering what the score is of your team and your emotional stability is compromised if they do not make it. How pathetic is that? I didn't get an amen from anyone on that. I'm, it's good. I like it. The wives are like, amen. Preach it, pastor. Um, or the husbands might be saying that. There, there's a few. I know some. Anyway, this is ridiculous. Um, we want our house to be great. We want our team to do great. We want to look great. We want to feel great. We want our family to be great. We want everything to be great. Everyone has a desire to be great. Maybe you're thinking, nope, not me. I got my chamomile tea and my solar panels, my organic vegetables. I'm going off grid. I don't desire to be great. I desire the simple life. Now, listen, I'm not poking fun at you. But... 
you still desire to be great in your own way. Your finish line of what you perceive to be great might be different than the rest of ours, but we all desire to be great. In fact, the religious Pharisees, they desired greatness as well. They would wear large tassels on their robes to show how spiritual and awesome they were. And so they would like walk around town with some swagger with their, with their tassels on their robes. And people were like, whoa, look how many tassels are on that Pharisee's robe. And then some other Pharisee would walk by and he's got five more than you. And you're like, what? And then people would be like, oh, you're not as awesome. We're going to go over there. And then people would just become obsessed with that. In fact, if you were a Pharisee, did you know when you would give, They'd blow a trumpet. Hey, everyone, look, Pharisee's giving right now. Bump, ba, da, da. And then you'd look at all this money. Look how generous I am. Or if you were a Pharisee and you would fast, you would actually whitewash your face to show uh, the, the thing that you're going through is difficult. And they're like, oh, what's the matter with you? It's like, oh, I've been, I've been fasting for three, day, three hours. Three hours, yeah, I've been fasting. It's been really, that would be me anyway. But they, they would fast for a while. And they would do this all to show how important they were, how significant they were, how great they were. And really, during that day, what was the achievement of being great? It was a Pharisee, especially for, for Jews. They didn't care about the Roman government at that time. They weren't worried about gladiators and the Olympics and all those things. Greatness for, for God's people was, was embodied with those who were Pharisees. Everyone desires to be great. And it may look different from person to person, but we all want it. And it doesn't matter what you even call it. You can call it self-esteem, which is just another form of self-loathing and self-worship. Call it self-confidence. The desire to be great apart from grace is pride. The desire to pursue being awesome and being great apart from the grace of God on your own strength is pride. And pride at its core is self-worship. Man, how does he know this? Because I am. It's one of the most difficult things for me to talk about is to preach something that I'm not. And that is great. Or all of us would agree that we all struggle with this. We all know we want to be great. We want to be the center of our own universe because at the core of our sinful DNA is a desire to be great. Unpacking what it means to be human, Paul says in Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor thanked him but they became futile in their thinking and darkened their foolish hearts. And so humanity has a bent. We are wired to know that God is real, to glorify God and to worship this God. Yet, in knowing that God is real, we did not glorify him. And not only did we not even glorify him, we didn't even thank him for the life that he gave us. And in doing so, we became futile in our thinking. By default, we will worship a thousand other things before God. We will glorify and glory in a thousand other things before God. Our souls are so perverted, we would rather create imaginary gods to worship than to give glory to the true God. Think about that. Oh, where's your evidence? I don't know. The Israelites? Your life, my life, have we not created pseudo-gods to worship and to glorify them instead of glorifying God and giving thanks to him? And in our thinking, we become foolish and we get drunk off of our own pride. 
And pride is so intoxicating, most of us don't even think we are prideful. In fact, maybe you're like, man, this is a great message. I wish so-and-so was here, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's not pride at all. This intensive on humility and greatness goes against every cell in our body because everyone desires pride. It's not a question if you have pride, but how much does pride run your life? Now, I want you to know this. What Jesus is talking about, it's revolutionary. It was revolutionary then, and it is revolutionary today. And now we sit on the other side of history, 2,000 years, being like, yeah, of course Jesus is great. For them, the disciples didn't know that. The only thing they had other than Jesus to understand what was greatness was the Pharisees. And now here comes along this new embodiment of greatness who's going to show us what greatness actually looks like. And part of the way that Jesus draws this out of them is by asking the question that as they're en route to Jerusalem and they're going to Capernaum, they're going to be leaving Capernaum on their way, Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? But they kept silent. Verse 34, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was going to be great. And like we said, if I was God, if you were God, we would probably on the spot deal with that, right? But notice, Jesus does not rebuke them for their desire to be great, does he? Instead, he's going to channel their desire to be great towards a position of lowliness. But their desire to be great is pride. And in context, what is pride? As animated in this story, pride is the elevation of ourselves at the neglect and the expense of others. Jesus just told them, I'm going to die. And they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Elevation of self at the neglect and the expense of others. This is what the disciples are caught up in. I wonder, I would have loved, too bad the scriptures didn't go there. So my mind just begins to run and kind of speculate. What were they talking about? Like, who's going to have more followers, like, eventually, right? Who's going to preach the best sermon? Who is going to be on the Jerusalem Times bestsellers list? Who's going to have the biggest church? Who's going to do the most amazing, wonderful miracles? I mean, surely that's what they're arguing about. Who's going to have the greatest crown in heaven? Who's going to sit at the right hand of the Father? It's pride. And how does this pride play out? I want you to see this in context. They're arguing amongst each other about who is going to be the greatest. It's, this pride is manifested, listen, in having a competitive spirit. Having a, do you have a competitive spirit? Now, some of you don't. Others of you do. I have a very competitive spirit. I am... I, from when I was young, I had to be the best. I had to be the greatest at whatever it was that I found myself doing and still to this day. Like, like when I'm in community group and, and we're playing ping pong, I can be a really nice guy when we converse, but man, the moment we get our game on, I'm going to destroy you in ping pong. 
And you don't think so? Well, then let's go again, and I will destroy you again and again and again. And if I lose, then I can't be friends with you anymore because I'm so competitive. <laughs> I'm serious. I am, if we're out in the lineup and it's double overhead or a foot and a half overhead, I'm not going to be a pusher around in the lineup. I'll, I'll paddle right next to you. I'll let you know that I'll, I'll try to take off deeper and more stupid and be more insane. I'll do those things. I am by nature a competitive person. In fact, that has worked out for my disadvantage, though, more often than my, for my advantage. Because a competitive spirit within the people in the community of God crushes others and destroys community. A competitive spirit within the people of God crushes others and destroys community. Like, man, how does he know this? Because I've been there. When I let my sinful pride and my competitive spirit work itself out in my marriage and I'm arguing with my wife and I, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but for better or for worse, have to make my point because I need to win the argument, what happens when I do that? I sever or I damage my communion with God, and I've just, I've just destroyed my wife. It damages her. Why? Because I'd rather elevate myself at the neglect and the expense of my wife, because I'm prideful. In fact, in verse 38, this plays out further. John is like, hey, teacher, guess what? We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And you know what we told them to do, teacher? We told them to stop. <laughs> Great one, John. John's not competitive at all, right? He's not competitive at all. In fact, it's funny because you, you can read at, uh, in the other gospel accounts, John has a race with Peter to the tomb. So you know who's competitive on even the disciples? Peter and John are racing to the empty tomb. And John's like, yeah, I pretty much beat, beat, I, I beat him. But he speaks about it in the third person to be humble, right? Because he's humbled here. <laughs> they have a competitive spirit. Oh, can you believe it? They're casting it. They're not, they're not even part of the 12. You know, they didn't put in the time that we did. They haven't worked as hard as we have. They're not as devoted. They haven't even followed us. But Jesus says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. He's trying to, he's trying to put to death that pride, that, that competitive spirit that they have. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Why does a competitive spirit among the people of God crush others? Because Jesus designed for this community, for our community, is the opposite of the world's community. The community out there, the corporate mindset, the mindset maybe in your neighborhood, 
The mindset at your workplace is, how many people can serve you? How nice can your car be? Oh, that's your car? Well, I got this. Well, I lifted mine. Well, I lifted mine higher than yours. And it becomes this insane competition of, well, my house is nicer, or this is nicer, or I get paid more, or I'm in a better position. And we get really competitive out there. And what often we do is, because we get competitive out there, we bring that into the community of God, and it kills the community that God has intended for his people. The reason Jesus is addressing this is Jesus' design for our community is taking the pyramid and flipping it on its head. So now the first will be last and the last will be first, right? The kingdom of God is inverted from the kingdom of this world. What we value as a kingdom, as the people of God, is completely the opposite. In fact, that's why Jesus says famously, you, if you've been in church, you know this, you have this understanding, you know this statement. He said to them in verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. Okay, intensive lesson. You want to be a disciple? It's no longer about you. Stop looking out for number one. You want to be first? You want to be awesome? You want to be great? Be last. To be a disciple is to be small. To be a disciple is to be great. Here it is, by being a servant. So much about culturally, like how, how many people serve us? How many people come to meet our needs? How many people exist around to, to make us and benefit and bless us? But that's completely the opposite. It's not about how much people serve us, but it's how much we can serve others. Christian, you want to be great? You want to be awesome? You want to be first? Great. Awesome. Pursue that. Be humble and be last. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and here it is, to walk humbly with your God. You are not of this world. So don't take that world and bring it into the community of God's people. And that includes myself. James 4, 6. I want to read this to you. In our redeemed community, how should we live? James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, listen to me, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In our redeemed community, Romans 12, 16 tells us to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In our redeemed community, we should have this mindset, Galatians 6, 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. How's that for feeling good, right? You're nothing. I'm nothing. Oh, and if you think you're something, you're only confirming, in fact, that you're actually nothing. So what's the end result of that? What's the summary? We're nothing. <laughs> we need a cultural shift starting in my life and our community as a church. We need to be humble. 
Christians walk around with a swagger and a pride as though we saved ourselves, as though we got this life figured out. And in the big picture of Christian evangelicalism and even in our communities. And it's absurd. If God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, if we are a prideful people, could God not just remove our lampstand? Guys, this haunts me that my arrogance and my sinful pride would rob us of what God would do. And I hope that's true for you as well. Pastors at Shorebreak, leaders at Shorebreak, team leaders at Shorebreak, servants and volunteers and attendees of Shorebreak. If we are marked by pride, God opposes us. And he should remove our lampstand if that's the case. We need to restore and recover. Not looking at others, but looking within first and saying, God, teach us to be last. Because greatness is achieved by being last. If, listen, if we're going to be great, if we're going to be a great Christian, if you're going to be a great spouse, if you're going to be a great friend, grandparent, student, or even if we're going to be a great church, we have to be humble and have to be last. And we have to be a servant of all. And it almost seems like in verse 37, right after teaching this lesson, Jesus has like a squirrel moment, you know? Like, are you okay, Jesus? Are you ADD? Like, what happened there? He's not. Because in verse 36, he took this child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him by his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then he reiterates this in verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What is happening here? This random kid is just brought in? Yeah. To illustrate what point? Just as I have brought in this child and received this child, when you do the same thing in my name, you are acting in humble community. What? Yeah, so if you give a cup of water, you're not just giving a cup of water. If you're receiving a child, you're not just receiving a child because if they're in the community of God, you're doing it as unto the Lord. That's why these verses say, in my name. So what's the parallel truth? How you treat others is how you treat Christ. You want to know how you're doing? You want to get a pulse on your relationship with the God of this universe? How do you treat others? How do you treat others within the community of believers? Oh God, teach us to be last. Now hear me, please hear me on this. In danger of Satan the accuser confusing what message we are declaring right now or if we are misunderstanding what it means to be great, I just need to say this. This is meekness, but not weakness. 
This doesn't mean we are cowards. It means we are courageous. Be bold, but may your boldness for the Lord be saturated in humility. Because a lot of times, sometimes we overcompensate this thing of humility and we create a false humility. And false humility is, is just kind of this like, opposite of overconfidence it's like absolutely no confidence and when we're there we kind of swing to the other side and you know that is it's just false pride it's another form of pride to be arrogant to think that well you know i'm worth nothing god didn't say that about you it's another form of pride While we should not be competitive towards one another, it doesn't mean we should take off the jersey and sit in the dugout. We're on the same team. Keep the jersey on. We are fighting the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light, and Jesus is our team captain. John is willing to be boiled alive. Paul and Peter and John Mark and Barnabas have their disagreements and frustrations, but at the end of the day, they continue to partner with one another and preach the gospel. Stephen is bold, yet he is humble and willing to be stoned and die for his faith. James would have his head cut off. Jesus would be crucified. Why would all, what is a common theme throughout all these people and Christians for 2,000 years? We all live for a greater glory. We don't have to live for our glory anymore. And Jesus, who is the greatest person to breathe on this planet, I want you to think about this, is going to go through the worst humiliation ever. And if we claim to be his followers, it means not only should we be humble, but like Jesus, we will be humbled. So in our understanding of, 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 of being humble, yes, we humble ourselves in the sight of of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Be humbled and know the circumstances are coming that will humble you and me. Be humble, and you will be humbled. And if you're not going to be willing to be humbled, no, humiliation is coming anyways. And the lesson is much easier to learn if we're already on our knees in humility. And this is what Jesus is preparing them for. Greatness is demonstrated by Christ on the cross. What does it look like to be great? It's the embodiment of Jesus. To be great is to die. To be great is to lose your life. To be great is to live for a glory that is greater than our own. And if anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And the gospel will enable us to do this because we cannot do it on our own. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we all struggle with this issue of pursuing greatness and pride and apart from you. And I include myself, Lord. A shore break be known for everything. May it be known for the love that we have for one another and for the humility, the genuine humility that marks us as a people. And church, as we're taking this time to pray with our, our heads bowed, 
eyes closed. I want you to consider what God's word says as we're praying. In verse 37, Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. God, no child was too small or insignificant for you. May we be humble enough to receive you and your majestic salvation. Father God, you told Peter with his competitive, prideful spirit that he could not enter into your presence if he did not allow you to wash his feet. God, are we humble enough to allow you to touch the dirtiest, most prideful, most tender areas of our life. Wash us and make us clean. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please visit shorebreakchurch.com to stay connected or to share your story.